Acts 17. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd, but they did not find them. They dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. This is the word of God. Morning, everybody. Hope you are well. Um, so here we are, Spirit-filled Church. Uh, we're back. I think we, we did this two years ago, so this is this is part seven this time. But uh, I think we're up to about part eighteen or nineteen. Um, we'll get there eventually. So let, let's start off by looking back a bit. Uh, we've been looking at the missionary journeys of Paul over the last few weeks. Uh, and in the first one, you can see the slide there. I hope you can make it out. Uh, he leaves from Antioch, which is just north of modern-day Israel, and travels around Cyprus and Turkey. And then in the, uh, the, the, the second one, a couple of years later, he sets off again uh, through Turkey and up into Greece. Actually, can you put it on to the next slide? Sorry. There you go. Yeah, so he's, he's on a longer trip this time around. Um, so you can take that down, actually. Last week, uh, Christoph took us through the story of Paul's adventures in two cities, one called, I think it's pronounced Derby, and the other called Philippi. And we saw that there are a number of ways that God will use us to reach people with his message, and also that God's good news can reach anyone at all. There's no one beyond the grace of God, you know. Um, and, and there's a number of famous atheists, and I often wonder if sometime we'll turn on the news, you know, and you'll hear about 
maybe Richard Dawkins or Samuel Dennis is after coming to faith. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, the converts, anyway, that Paul gained at this time were from all backgrounds. And that leads us to this week. Paul travels to another city, about 100 miles from where they were last week, called Thessalonica. Uh, the residents there were called Thessalonians. And those of you who know your Bible know that Paul wrote two letters to the church there. And if you look at those letters, don't bother flick there now, but if you look at them, you'll find that he lets us know that he, left, he, he, he arrived there feeling like he'd taken a bit of a battering uh, in the place that he just was, which was Philippi, which was what Christoph was talking to us last week. And because of all that suffering, he, he feels like he received strength from God to go to Thessalonians, right? And tell the people the good news. And in the second half of the, the, the reading, which Lisa gave us there, is this story uh, from a town called Berea. So all of the action then uh, takes place in modern-day Greece, right? Now, I'll be honest, this passage didn't grab me like other passages. I've got, I've got well, four points, three points, but, and an extra thing. Uh, not necessarily connected. Well, they are connected. You know, I like to have some flow between what I'm saying, but today I've got four shortest points, right? Firstly, I'm going to say that God... Kind of following on for some of what Christoph was talking last week about. God wants us to think critically about how we tell others about Jesus and the gospel. But for the most part, for the most part, he wants us to do what's worked beforehand. So that's one point. Second thing, don't be scared of the Old Testament. And thirdly, Read your Bible. And then lastly, I want to talk about the gospel, right? So four points, fairly simple. And this this very so the first one, okay? God wants us to use what works when it comes to evangelism, but to be open to criticism, okay? So in Paul's Thessalonica, a, a, a city, as I said, about 100 miles away from the last place that they've been in, uh, and on his way to it, you'll notice in the first verse there, he passes by two, a couple of places to get there. And it appears that the reason he doesn't stop everywhere is that these other places don't have synagogues, right? Whereas Thessalonica does. And a synagogue, I, I'm sure most of you know, but just in case, it's a, a place where Jewish people meet to read their Bible and pray and worship God. And the reason, and I want to highlight this, is because Paul, as we saw last week, is open to whatever the Holy Spirit leads him to do. He preaches to lads in jail. He joins Bible studies uh, that are for women only down by the river. He deals with folk possessed by demons. And in other parts of this book of Acts, he preaches to city officials when he's up in, in court in front of them. He preaches to sailors on a boat in a storm. He will do and take whatever opportunities come across his way to tell people the gospel, right? Um, and some people, but sorry, but that is not to say that he does not have an approach that works best for him. Some people have called Paul the apostle of the Holy Spirit because his life so clearly demonstrates a reliance on God's Spirit to lead him, guide, and empower him. And again, we saw that last week where the Holy Spirit, he, Paul says the Holy Spirit actually blocked them from going where they wanted to go. And yet, in no way would it be right to say that he is like a, 
completely freewheeling individual where every day he gets up and he hasn't a clue what he's going to do. You know, what have you got for me today, Lord? Um, in fact, he's quite strategic in his thinking. And for Paul, his modus operandi, the way he does things, is to go to the synagogue and speak to the Jews there. It's the first, first port to call every time. And bear in mind, right, Paul himself, indeed Jesus himself, tasks him with taking the gospel to non-Jews. That's why he is made an apostle, to go and talk to Gentiles about the gospel. And yet everywhere he goes, the first place he goes to when he arrives in town is to the Jewish synagogue. And the point really is quite simple. Until God shows us something otherwise, we should continue to use the methods of reaching others with the gospel that we have always done. I got friends uh, who would be quite critical of, well, virtually everything that we do in church that is evangelistic. Uh, It's not pure enough. It's too pragmatic. It's not doctrinal enough. But my response to all of that would be, well, this is a natural path for us to tread. We've done it many times before, and it's worked. So then what we see here is Paul demonstrates this. You know, stick to what you know works unless the Spirit shows you otherwise. And the only thing I want to say against it is that if we keep doing something merely because that's what we've always done, that's not good enough either. Paul keeps going to synagogues because every time he goes there and preaches, he sees people starting to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And not just Jews either, but people from all backgrounds. So he was fulfilling his calling by doing this. He was not just reaching non-Jewish people with his message. So going to synagogues wasn't something he did because it reminded him of his childhood and his upbringing. You know, they were his people. He knew the lingo, that kind of thing. That's all true. But the reason he was there was because God kept blessing his efforts there. If he started to go to synagogues and every time he went, all he got was riots or indifference... You know, that would be the time when he would change his tactics. And, you know, I used to go um, street preaching with a microphone. You know, you know those guys? Right? And in my experience, some of those guys are, are, are good lads. I know a lad who, who, who has a sketchboard. Uh, he's inside in Belfast most Saturdays. And he talks to folk there every week about Jesus and the gospel. But I hung around, the lads that I hung around with were some of the more extreme wing of the street preaching fraternity. Yeah, you know, they were the kind, and this is true, we'd stand outside of secondary school gates as they were going in in the morning. Uh, can you imagine me and Christoph out the front of Bloomfield or Grosvenor, quarter to nine in the morning, preaching about the need for repentance? So, but and one thing that I heard from from them lads was quite frequently, was that the continuous hostility and or indifference that they received was a sign of the gospel going forth. I I'm not so sure about that anymore. If nothing's coming from it, that's a time to think about it. Take a look at this slide here. Yes, very good. This is from John Wesley's diary. Can you read it? I don't see too much squinting. John Wesley is the founder of Methodism. And he found that his chosen method that worked for him was open-air preaching. I mean, he, he was in churches as well, as you can see. They kept kicking him out. And he is the forebearer of all of those hardcore street preaching friends of mine. 
And he did, uh, he did experience opposition. You know, they, the, the, my favorite one is where they threw a bull into the field where he was preaching the May 26th. Uh, lots of opposition. But take a look at the, the, the very last entry. What do you see there? June 2nd, afternoon service, preached in a pasture. 10,000 people came to hear me. Now, if all he had got was continuously being kicked out of churches, would he have kept going? If all he had got was nothing, would, we be, would I be talking about him today? No. I would not. We need to continue, we can take that down, we need to continue doing whatever we can to reach people with the gospel using whatever has worked for us before, but, but let's never forget to be open to something new or to be open to critiquing what we're doing. second point I want to make is this. Don't, and I, I know a lot of you are actually, don't be scared of the Old Testament. So, so Paul is doing his usual thing in the synagogue, yeah? He meets there for three Sabbaths. And of course the Jewish Sabbath, as I'm, I'm sure a lot of you know of, is on a Saturday. And each time he comes along and he reasons from the Bible, which at the time uh, was what we know of now as the Old Testament. And each time he's there, he tries to prove two things. Firstly, that the Messiah had to die and come back to life again. And then secondly, that Jesus is this Messiah. And this, of course, is exactly what Jesus himself preached time and time again. At least, uh, at least on six different occasions, the Gospels actually record Jesus saying something exactly like this. For example, Luke chapter 9, verse 22, he says to disciples, and I quote, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be killed, and on the third day raise again. So it's no wonder that this is Paul's message. Now one of the things that has really struck me throughout this series, and I, I, you know, every time actually we've been doing, uh, I've been preaching from this book, is just how Old Testament based Paul's gospel message is. And like absolutely every time um, I've come up here and preached, I've felt the need in my explanation to you to summarize Paul's message. And it's basically a summary of the big picture of the Old Testament. That's what Paul does. And his message is very simple. It has two parts. He says, firstly, the time of Moses' laws has passed. And if you are using them to gain God's favor or to earn salvation, you've completely missed the point. And secondly... All the promises that the prophets made, but especially all of the covenants, which are basically promises that God made with Adam, Abraham, David, they're all about Jesus, and he's here. That's Paul's message. And you know, a couple of nights ago, right, I did a thing in Converse, that's one of our youth groups here, and I did a little talk, and I showed them a very basic diagram to explain the gospel to them. Um, here it's coming. No? No? No, boss? Have you got that one, Paul? Oh, sorry. Here we go. It's called the bridge diagram, right? I'm sure you've seen it. It's very basic. It's got a person on one side, God on the other with a gap between the two. I say sin has caused the gap. We can't have a relationship with God because of the sin. There is the danger of being punished. 
by God for the sin. What are we to do? Well, we can't sort it out on our own, so we need Jesus' work on the cross. Jesus takes our punishment, brings us to God so that we can be sure that we have a relationship with him and that we will pass any judgment that we have after we die. And like, you know, all, all of these, like that's the message I use, all of these mes- ways of, of, of presenting the gospel, all these methods, they're by nature, they're very reductionistic, right? You can't fit everything in. But it is good to have one in your back pocket. Uh, you don't want to get caught out when someone asks you, well, you know, what is it you believe anyway? Right? So you just scribble it down. No. You can take that down. Thanks. I didn't mention... Well, let me ask a question. When I, was, when I said that, did I mention Moses or Abraham or David? Or did I, even, did I even use the word Messiah when I said that? No, I didn't. But I suspect that what's after happening to us is that because we can tell the gospel without reference to the covenants, um, without reference to Moses, Abraham... One of the reasons why the Old Testament puts a lot is one of the reasons, sorry, why the Old Testament people are put off by it. But here's what Paul's preaching teaches us: the Old Testament is easy. Well, it's easier once you know the key, and the key is Jesus and the gospel. Now there is, you know, there's a lot that I could be said. There's there's libraries of books that have been written on this topic. But here are some examples. The stories in the Old Testament, right? Some of them. I was talking to someone. uh, Where is he? I don't know if he's here. Someone last week, and they were saying to me, you know, they pointed out something in Judges, and they're like, "Look at this. What what what's this about? You know, because it was mental. It is mental." Is it chapter 18 or chapter 28? The second last chapter, you know, where they chop up the, the woman. You read that stuff. It's, it's, it's mad, right? And you're like, how, how has that got anything to do with us today? But a lot of these stories just simply show the need of a saviour. And sometimes people are shocked at what they find in there. And yet that's the point. It's meant to show you something's not right. Sometimes the writers have longings, you know, read Lamentations that can only be fulfilled by a saviour. At times the people in the Old Testament act in a good way and that points to a good aspect of who Jesus is. A lot of the stories um, can highlight some doctrine that we delight in. For example, Abraham was not counted as righteous by God but by by what he did, sorry, but because he had faith. And then you have the whole religious system of sacrifices. I know that a lot of good Bible reading plans have been destroyed once you get to Leviticus. You're like, what? I can't go any further. But the whole system that's in there shows us our need for an ultimate sacrifice that does away with that system. So that we can approach God all the time, anytime, anywhere. And at times then as well, there are many direct statements about a future king or a messiah. And then lastly, the whole Old Testament, as I've said a number of times recently, is structured around these covenants that God made with Adam, and then Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and then lastly, the so-called new covenant that he made through the prophets. And it's all pointing to one man. Or maybe that feels like a lot, and you're like, well, that doesn't clear up anything for me, Richie. But here it is, right? In simple form. The Old Testament either directly talks about some aspect of him and the gospel, 
or the stories through either comparison or contrasting are also talking about Jesus. It's all about him. So when you pick it up, look for him. And here's the point. The Old Testament, it seems foreign to a lot of people. But once you get the key, these promises of God, all these ways of point to Jesus, it can open up. The gospel is in there. Don't forget that. Everything points to Jesus. And remember this, if, you don't, if, you, if, you're, if you're still not convinced, remember the story of uh, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus. You know, the two boys are walking along, and then Jesus appears, they don't recognize him. Jesus says, what are you doing? You know, what are you talking about? And they tell him about what's been happening in Jerusalem the weekend before. And then Jesus says, and I quote, because they don't know what's going on, you know. He said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. End of quote. Read the Old Testament, folks. Look for Jesus in there. You'll find him. It's not always clear, but he is in there. So, there's two points. Third point neatly comes on on the back of that, and it's this. Read your Bible. Now, I, I think if I, you were to line up all of the minor characters in the Bible and do a survey of every Christian, even every Christian in this room, right? Or every Christian that ever lived and see who was the most well-known minor character from the Bible. I would put good money on the Bereans being high up the list. Yeah? Uh, if not at the top, especially in evangelical circles, because they're kind of like minor rock stars, you know. One hit wonders, they only appear once, but we've never forgotten them. And the reason why is quite simple. When Paul comes and gives his message, unlike many other times, when Paul went to a synagogue where the reaction was a mixture of anger or acceptance, these guys, first thing they did, is they got out the Bible. Now you might say to me, well, uh, surely, Richie, the point is just to read, uh, is not just to read your Bible, but the point is to check, to use it, to check what people are saying. Isn't that what they did here? Yes. But that misses the wider context here, which is that these guys loved God's word. This wasn't a doctrinal boxing match that they were in. It was an aspect of their life that God's word was central to their existence. So when someone came along and said something that appears new, their response wasn't going to be, their response was going to be, well, let's look at what the scriptures have to say. Because that was their response in a lot of life. There's been um, a good few times when Jehovah's Witnesses have come to my door. I don't know if you've ever talked to anybody from the Jehovah's Witnesses. They're very active here in Belfast, actually. I only met one of them in Dublin, but uh, we've had a good few to the door here in Belfast. And, and by the way, I should say as well before I go on, you know, if they ever come to your door, let them in. I'd rather they were talking to you than your neighbour who doesn't have a clue, you know. So do. Bring them in. Take them out for half an hour. Uh, have them challenge you. Come talk to me or Christoph if you've got problems. But the first couple of times that they came and I met them, they quoted all sorts of uh, Bible stuff to me and I, I did not know what to say to them because they were making a good argument. 
And like, think about this. When Paul comes to these Bereans, right, he's probably going to be talking to them about Genesis chapter 3, 12, 15, and 17, uh, Isaiah 53, Psalm 2, and, and on and on and on, right? The only way that these lads would have been able to have confidence that they could have argued with Paul from the scriptures is if they had known their Bibles well in the first place. When the Jehovah's Witness came to me first, I wasn't sure what to say to them. But now, years later, I have the kind of confidence that comes from reading the Bible on a regular basis. And you know, Christoph has, uh, 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 and, and sorry, and the, uh, the, the Bereans had this kind of confidence as well. And I want to build on that. It's not like I'm finished, you know. And Christoph has been saying this a couple of times in the last couple of months that we have been struck by this really simple observation that if you want to grow as a Christian, one of the things that will help you is reading your Bible. It's not rocket science. And I should say, um, it's not just about reading on your own. Of course, that should be a part of it. But you can do it with your friends, discipleship group. Uh, And yesterday, myself and Erica were at this conference where one of the things things they were advocating for was reading it with whoever is with you in your house on a regular basis. Read the Bible, say a prayer, sing if you're bold enough. Ten minutes tops. And the guy who was talking to us was saying that he was telling us stories of families, of marriages, of houses that were radically changed by this very simple uh, interaction with God's word. And look, I know, we don't always do it. There have been times where I haven't cracked open my own Bible outside of working here or with my family for up to a month. Um, But... We preach forgiveness. We preach a loving God. If you're there, come back. And I know that it's not always exciting either. It's not always revealing. It can be quite dry sometimes. But again, so what? In this passage, um, they use words that are quite kind of studious sounding. Paul says that he proved, or attempted to prove and explain from the scriptures. The Bereans said they examined them. All's to say, folks. If you've never tried to read it, let's start this week. If you've gotten off track, let's get back on. The words of life are in there. The words of the gospel are in there. Which leads me to my last point. The gospel itself. And like I said uh, a couple of minutes ago, I used this bridge diagram to speak to the teens on Friday, right? And here Paul does something totally different. He, he, he didn't whip out the, the bridge diagram for the Jews in Thessalonica. He says, the Messiah has come to die, has come, sorry, he died, and he came back to life. And that Jesus is this Messiah. So his goal in the, in the two places is to prove to these people that the Messiah they've been waiting for is Jesus. And on Friday night... I was trying to convince the teens that we are separated from God and that we will be judged for how we live for our life and that the only way to solve both of these problems is through faith in Jesus, right? Now, <clears throat> I've been very pragmatic today in my sermon. You know, I, I picked up, I, this is kind of a point in case of what I'm talking about. Sometimes you pick up the Bible and nothing really stupendously juicy struck me, Right? But I went to what I saw in front of me. 
This passage is a story, nonetheless, of a man who was motivated to travel hundreds of miles to endure suffering and imprisonment and riots just so he can tell people about Jesus. We probably go through that. We, we probably won't go through that. Sorry. Like Paul did. But like him, we're also forgiven people. Our sins won't be held against us. We're not going to go to hell when we die. We'll be going to heaven. We have God, the Holy Spirit, living in us to help us to follow God's laws. We've been given a new identity as children of God. We're given a new family in the people of God. We've been given a lot. It's like, you know, myself and Lisa were talking before. And we, I, I had shared with her during the week that I wasn't sure where I was going. And she was saying, I hope I don't cut across you. But like, you know, what she said earlier on is exactly it. We got this great thing. Let's share it. Let's take the opportunities that come our way to show people all that we have been given. And don't, don't let past failures, I have plenty of them. Or don't let guilt, I got 50 monkeys on my back, stop you. The Spirit will call you again tomorrow morning to follow him, just like he does here with Paul. The, our success, our failure, is not our king. The boys up in Stormont are not our king. If Philip ever becomes king, he won't be the king. We have one king, Jesus. Let's do all we can to share that's it. Let me pray. Father, teach us the best way to live for you. Give us the freedom to be critical where we need to be of the things we do for you. Give us a love for your word, every part of it, and open its meaning to us. Help us to see your son on every page, Father, because we know he's in there. Lead us to the people around us who are looking for you and help us to share the good news of your son with them. And thank you, Father, for all the ways of your grace in our lives. Your grace is the most important thing in our life. Help us to believe that. Amen.